earnestly seek to commend yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of, handling the word of truth with precision. We're glad you're joining us for today's program, A Word from the Word, with your host, Pastor Tom, who will unpack for us the richness and beauty of the Bible's original languages as they bear on key words and concepts from both Testaments. Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining me on A Word from the Word. We're continuing our closer look at Colossians. Our series title is, Don't Lose Your Head! Borrowed from Colossians 2.19. And the podcasts are posted at faithtalk1360.com. Just search the menu for local program podcasts. Today's part four is, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Remember now, we're tracing the idea of the supremacy of Christ in this incredible and thought-provoking letter written to the Christ followers in Colossae. You know, friends, of all the religious and quasi-religious literature in the world, why is that only the Bible, this particular collection of documents on which Christianity's belief system depends, challenges the competing religious notion that humans can gain acceptance or earn ultimate salvation by doing something? And this something, often labeled works, or good works, is usually defined in the context of a particular religious system. Sadly, even in Christian circles, some have succumbed and not remained immune to this idea. And friends, I don't think I'd be doing an injustice to a little phrase in the book of Jude who pegs this notion as the way of Cain. The way of Cain? What is the way of Cain, by the way? Got any ideas? Well, to answer that question properly, we need to go back to Genesis 4. But I promise we'll get to Colossians. But it'll help us if we make a brief historical trip back in time and read a little of Genesis 4. So here's verses 1 through 12. Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, With the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you don't do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Now Cain said to his brother, Let's go out in the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where's your brother Abel? I have no idea. That's just my paraphrase. Am I my brother's keeper? You've heard that expression before, right? This is where it comes from. 
The text continues. The Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you're under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crop for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Now, friends, in interpreting this passage, we must be extremely careful that we don't project backward into this story truths that are revealed later. In theological circles, it's called retrojecting, that is, projecting back into a story truths revealed later in time. For example, we may be tempted to think that what made Abel's offering acceptable to God over Cain's is that Abel brought an offering that required shedding blood, sacrificing from his flock, whereas Cain only offered some fruit of the ground, per verses 3 through 5. We might arrive at this faulty conclusion because we know that later, in the giving of the law of Moses, acceptable sacrifices for sins involved shedding animals' blood a sacrifice that foreshadowed the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. After all, he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, right? Well, let me propose to you, friends, that this conclusion would be doing a disservice to the story in Genesis 4. Let's take a closer look at 4.3. The NIV and NAS begin with, In the course of time... And the NAS has a marginal note explaining that the Hebrew says, at the end of days. This is likely because the Hebrew expression communicates the end of a definitive period of time, and the Hebrew word for day is also used. So this seems to suggest that offerings to the Lord had already become a regular practice. And since we're told here that this was the first occasion where Cain was rebuked, we can infer that God accepted his previous offerings. It's been said, the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. The text seems to suggest that the heart attitude and not simply the offering is the problem here. Then verse 7 adds, If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? There's an interesting wordplay here. Right can be translated acceptable, so this phrase can say, If you do what is acceptable, will you not be accepted? Now, friends, here's a perfect instance where the whole counsel of God helps us in interpreting this statement. In Hebrews 11.4, there's one single entry about Abel. By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, he still speaks, even though he is dead. Notice the text doesn't say Abel's sacrifice was better than Cain's. It says, by faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. So the important, necessary ingredient that we need to add to the equation back in Genesis 4 is what? Faith. And it was the kind of faith that put Abel in right standing with God. Remember now, the biblical word faith or believe in both testaments means trusting in and relying on the object of that trust and reliance being the Lord himself. Isaiah made this absolutely clear when rebuking Israel. As God's spokesperson, he says in chapter 1, 10 and following, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. God uses this metaphor, rulers of Sodom, for Israel because their behaviors matched Sodom's. So the text continues, 
Listen to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams, and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who asks this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless or worthless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. You've heard that verse, right? Isn't it great to hear it in its context? Isaiah continues, If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the best from the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Notice, friends, this last rebuke, the benefit and blessing of obedience is contrasted with disobedience and rebellion. Sound familiar? Doesn't it remind you of God's appeal to Cain in Genesis 4? When God said, if you do what is right or acceptable, will you not be accepted? But if you don't do what's right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires you, but you must master it. Now, Isaiah's words remind me of Paul's prayer for his own people, the Jews, in Romans 10, particularly that his prayer is for the salvation of the Israelites. He goes on to say that their zeal is not based on knowledge and that they've sought to establish their own righteousness. Knowledge in Romans 10.2 is a buzzword we've been following in this Colossian study. Here the Greek word means full personal and experiential knowledge, and not just head knowledge. Then in verse 4, Paul says, Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. But friends, we must understand that Paul is not saying that Christ put an end to the law, but that the law's end goal, or end product, if you will, the law's fulfillment, is now in Christ, in the Messiah. End here must be understood to mean culmination. And this is totally consistent with Jesus' own words in Matthew 5.17. Do not think that I have come to abolish or destroy the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Some of the best insights by Messianic Jews tell us that fulfill here communicates that Jesus came to fill the law with its fuller meaning and that he himself is its fulfillment. Romans 8.4 tells us that the righteous requirements of the law are fulfilled in us who walk according to the Spirit. And James 2.8 exhorts us to keep the royal law, which is loving those around us. 
By the way, I'm sure you're familiar with James's words, faith without works is dead, right? Well, the opposite sentiment is equally true. Works without faith are dead too. Whoa, we don't think of that very often, I'm guessing. You see, friends, Cain's offering, Cain's work, if you will, was missing that necessary important ingredient, faith. And the whole counsel of God's word has another entry on Cain in 1 John 3.12. Do not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And for what reason did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil, but his brother's, Abel's, were righteous. Notice First Cain was of the evil one, then he murdered Abel. Why? Because his actions or works, per the King James Version, were evil. But Abel's were righteous. Friends, I propose that evil actions spring from evil attitudes. Even outward actions can appear righteous, but be defiled by our inner attitude. The prophet Malachi's words reinforce this. They kind of resonate with what Isaiah preached. Speaking for God, Malachi says, A son honors his father, and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me? Says the Lord God Almighty. It is your priests who show contempt for my name. I believe priests here can represent spiritual leaders. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? says the Lord Almighty. Now plead with God to be gracious to us with such offerings from your hands. Will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Then Malachi lists more detestable actions that profane God. But in saying that the Israelites offered defiled food on his altar, I believe defiled food symbolizes a defiled heart, an outward manifestation of an inward condition. In chapter 2, 2, Malachi continues his rant. If you, priests, do not listen and do not resolve to honor my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse on you, and I will curse your blessings. Now, friends, I haven't forgotten Cain and Abel. Isn't it interesting that the two New Testament verses about them in Hebrews and 1 John both call Abel righteous? indicating he was in right standing with God. I believe this righteousness presupposes exercising faith in God, trusting in his provision, and not human abilities. You see, friends, Adam and Eve's fall into sin brought two more S-words into the mix, self-sovereignty and self-sufficiency. These both directly challenge the sovereignty and sufficiency of Christ. This backstory is important as we move ahead in our closer look at Colossians. You've probably been wondering how all this ties in with Colossians, right? Well, here it is. What's our overarching theme of Colossians? The supremacy of Christ in all things. If Christ is supreme in all things, then he must be sovereign and sufficient. Sovereign in and over creation and sufficient in his atoning sacrifice for our sins. 
You see, friends, the way of Cain was the way of self-sovereignty and self-sufficiency. God did not accept Cain's offering because he offered it without faith. And he likely did it as a mere formality, making it a lifeless and empty offering, as God rebuked Israel in Isaiah chapter 1. Does this go on today? Do you know people who are resting in their formality to gain them acceptance before God and not faith? This formality, friends, manifests itself in a myriad of ways and in a myriad of religious systems. And so this background is extremely important if we're to understand at all Paul's words in Colossians chapter 2, part of which we covered last time. Here in chapter 2, Paul pulls out all the stops. He blasts the Colossians with both barrels of his spiritual shotgun, but he has carefully worked his way up to this section. Last time we covered verses 1 through 10, so I'll back up to verse 6 for continuity of Paul's thinking. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head of every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with a circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God, who raised him from the dead." When you were dead in your sins and in the circumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross." Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of things to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen, and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He has lost connection with the head. And friends, this is where our series is called Don't Lose Your Head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they're based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Boy, that was a mouthful, huh? 
But here Paul, in our one felled swoop, exposes the elements of Jewish legalism, Greek mystery religions, and Gnosticism. Think of where the Colossians could have gone had they further embraced these false beliefs. Let's review the list. Verse 11, circumcision. Verse 14, the written code, or our legal indebtedness. In Romans 2, Paul uses this buzz phrase to refer to the law of Moses, because those who live under the law as a duty became indebted to it. Friends, Christ paid this debt, nailing it to the cross. Verse 16, dietary laws. Paul may be giving a double whammy here to both Jews and the Gnostics, since Gnostics took two options in life, one of them being asceticism, which included strict eating habits. The other option characterized the libertines, who believed that since their spirits were pure, it didn't matter what they did with their bodies. Their behavior wouldn't adversely affect their spirits. Now the dietary laws in verse 16 are elaborated on in verses 21 through 23. Then again in verse 16, festivals, new moons, and Sabbaths. Notice that this list of practices focuses on human efforts and behaviors, these being contrasted with the simple yet powerful phrase in verse 17. The reality, however, is found in Christ. In fact, friends, chapter 2's 23 verses are peppered with phrases like in Christ, with Christ, for Christ, by Christ, on Christ, or Him, 14 times. You see, friends, the bottom line is that Christ is sufficient. Amen? He's sufficient in Himself. We don't need Christ plus blah, 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 fill in the blank. Christianity doesn't need add-ons. Christianity doesn't need to be bedfellows with the array of other religious systems with their burdensome weights of rules and regulations, false humility and harsh treatment of the body. What distinguishes Judeo-Christianity, properly understood, is that instead of being ruled by rules and regulations, we become ruled and regulated by the Holy Spirit, who empowers us to live obediently to God's commands out of love and not duty. Friends, in Christ we are full and complete. If we're in Christ, we need nothing more nothing less, and nothing else. It's why today's title is, It's Not What You Know, It's Who You Know. Well, friends, we must unlock another letter, the N-word, the New Age Movement. You see, if Paul were transported to our present time, I believe he would preach the same thing to us he preached to the Colossians. If he visited your church, my church, any local church in our world, he could preface this letter with, to the church in, you name your city. If you're familiar with the New Age movement at all, you'll realize that Colossians is a living letter. Its life message extends way past the first century into our own. The only difference being that in the first century, the phrase New Age movement wasn't coined yet. All they had was Gnosticism and the Greek mystery religions. All the religious elements back then have just been revived and repackaged for our generation's consumption. F.B. Meyer once said, What need have we for celestial beings like those invented by the Gnostics or for the rite of circumcision insisted on by the Jews? We have everything in Christ. Amen? 
Do you believe that? Remember our overarching theme, the supremacy of Christ in all things? And why I've nicknamed Colossians the Book of Priorities. Life is all about priority living, isn't it? Colossians teaches us Christ followers how to live and how to order our priorities. So you see, friends, it's never been what you need to know. It's always been who you need to know. And we need to know God the Father through his Son, Jesus Christ. It's Christ who is sufficient, who makes us sufficient. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, we're nearing the end of our program. Today's broadcast will close with an email where you may write me. I'm so thankful to those of you who write in and share your feedback. One listener recently wrote in regarding the first two installments in our Colossians series with, As always, you're right on target. May we always be able to distinguish our God from imposters who try to get us confused. Blessings. Well, thanks for those encouraging words. And friends, since a word from the word is a listener-supported program, if it's blessing you, please join a word from the word support team, especially now in these challenging financial times. Your sacrificial generosity keeps this program on the air. Just email me for the details. Well, thanks for listening today, friends. And remember, Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom with a word from the word. Friends, if you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this program has meant to you, email him at a word from the word at minister.com. That's a word from the word at minister.com.